Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Brent Johnson, CEO of Santiago Capital, a wealth management firm headquartered in Puerto Rico. You might have heard of Brent if you are familiar with the dollar milkshake theory, which he came up with. But if you're not, don't worry. We do a deep dive on his thesis and why you should be concerned about the dramatic rise in the U.S. dollar and some of the implications. Given Brent's views that we are headed for a currency crisis, we also discuss how individuals can navigate this. Brent shared why you should allocate to gold and cash during this moment. He also shared some ideas for CEOs of companies doing business overseas. Brent also shared why he has concerns about Bitcoin. I really enjoyed this conversation with Brent. I learned a lot and I think you will too. Brent Johnson, CEO of Santiago Capital, a wealth management firm headquartered in Puerto Rico. Welcome to the show. It's so great to have you on. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Well, it's a really important time, and I'm excited to talk to you as well, especially on uh, the dollar milkshake theory, which we will certainly get to. But just to help the folks get to know you better, Brent, can we kind of go back and revisit a bit more of your background? Would you mind sharing a bit of your background? Sure. I guess it kind of depends on how far back you want to go. But I was I was born in a little town and uh, grew up in a little town in western Nebraska, um, you know, kind of bounced around uh, between Kansas and Arizona for college. Moved to New York in the late 90s. Uh, from there, uh, transferred to San Francisco, where I was for 20 years. I worked for uh, Donalds and Lufkin and Jenrette and then Credit Suisse uh, for a number of those years. Uh, after 2009, I joined a friend of mine who had his own independent wealth management firm. And from there, I set up my own wealth management firm called Santiago Capital. And a year and a half ago, moved to Puerto Rico. So um, it's been an interesting couple of decades at this point. Yeah. Um, I want to just also bring up with you or just to get, get folks um, kind of to kind of hear more of your perspective on the macro view. And then I do want to explore the uh, dollar milkshake theory. But what is kind of right now your global macro view? What are the things that you're thinking about the most? Well, for I think I think in very simplified terms, the thing I think about the most are currencies. Um, I think that uh, I, I have thought and I continue to think that we're headed for a currency crisis. Um, that's kind of where the whole dollar milkshake uh, idea comes from, essentially. Um, so, you know, and we've seen massive moves in currencies over the last year. Mm-hmm. You know, when you see the yen down 30 percent in a year and the pound down 15 percent in a year and the euro down 20 percent in a year, these are massive moves for currencies. These are very big moves, even if it was an emerging market currency. Uh, but it's kind of an unheard of size of a move for major currencies. And if you think about it, currencies kind of underlie the entire uh, system, especially for these domestic countries. And when currencies uh, get into crisis, you basically have a national crisis. And it often you know, bubbles up into a multinational crisis. So uh, I, I think the th- the first thing I look at every morning when I wake up is what's gold doing and what's the dollar doing. So that probably gives you a little bit of a sense of of how I think about the world. Yeah. And for a few years now, you've um, had this dollar milkshake theory. Um, maybe for folks who are new to this, um, can you explain what that is? Sure. The dollar milkshake uh, is really a framework for how I see a sovereign debt and currency crisis play out. Um, I didn't kind of specify this earlier with my background, but in my entire career, I've always uh, been in a a position where I managed money for individuals. And the individuals that I work with are extremely smart, extremely successful, but they're not necessarily finance people. So, you know, if I started talking about credit defaults to the ops or interest rate policy 
or Fed meeting minutes, um, you know, their eyes would probably start to glaze over. So I always have to kind of figure out a simplified way of explaining to them the way I think uh, things are, are heading, what's going to happen. And the the dollar milkshake was, was a simplified way for me to explain that post-global financial crisis, the world as a whole responded by flooding the system with the stimulus, liquidity, bailouts, however you want to define the extraordinary monetary policies that came out of the global financial global financial crisis. Um, but I thought as we got uh, into the late uh, 2018, 2019 timeframe, I, I could see this currency crisis developing. It's taken longer to develop than I thought it would, but it kind of seems to be playing out now. And I thought what would happen in this crisis was that global capital would flee the rest of the world and work its way into the U.S. dollar and and into U.S. markets. And I thought it would become a um, self-perpetuating system. And there's a movie called There Will Be Blood uh, that that, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, I think he won the Oscar for this role where he's this uh, oil baron and he's negotiating a piece of land um, that's right next to his. And the other uh, the other oil guy wants, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis to buy his plot of land. And he says, if you buy my land, you can have all the oil underneath it. And Daniel Day-Lewis says, you know, I don't really need to buy your land. All I have to do is stick a straw down into the ground and I can drink up all your oil. And he says, I can drink your milkshake. And when I when I heard that, I, I thought that was a very good analogy for what I see happening. I think for a number of reasons. Uh, some deserved, maybe some not deserved. Uh, some people like it, some people don't like it. But I think for a number of reasons, the U.S. has a lot of advantages that the rest of the world just does not have. And that is the straw. And I think the the the, the milkshake is all this liquidity, all this stimulus, all the, the bailouts. Again, however you want to define those policies after the global financial crisis, that's the milkshake that was put into the system. But because the U.S. has the straw, you know, we kind of have the ability to drink it up. And I think that's kind of what we've seen over the last uh, three or four years. Despite, uh, you know, the volatility we've had along the way, you know, U.S. asset prices uh, have doubled over the last four or five years. Uh, um, the U.S. dollar's up 20%, you know, over the last couple of years. And I said, uh, even initially, I said, well, I thought these asset prices would rise. I thought it would be punctuated by terrifying drawdowns along the way. And that's really what we've seen. We, we saw you know, a hard drawdown in late 2018. We saw another hard drawdown in 2020. We're seeing a hard drawdown now. But you know, if you zoom out and you look uh, over the last three, four, five years, you know, the dollar's higher, US assets are higher versus the rest of the world. And it, it, it seems that that's kind of the way it's headed to me. Yeah. We're the ones with the straw. We plucked, plunked it down. We're sucking all of that up. Let's um, explore, like, where, where do you think we are? You mentioned it's taking a little bit longer for this um, dollar milkshake theory to play out. Like, where where do you think we are? Um, I guess, I don't know, like, how you would describe it, but, like, within the dollar milkshake theory framework, yeah. like an inning or something. I don't know how you'd want to describe it, but where are we well, on it? It's really hard to pinpoint this. And so, first of all, I'll say it's very possible I'm wrong. Um, if I had to speculate, I think we're probably in the fourth or fifth inning. Maybe we're not quite halfway through it. And the reason I say that is that the dollar going higher at the expense of the rest of the world, it's it's not going to be allowed to happen without being 
without it trying to be counteracted along the way. And what I mean by that is you can the dollar, you know, is up significantly this year and it's already causing significant problems around the world. Now, to a certain extent, I think the United States likes this because it's kind of um, reinforcing their dominance over the rest of the world, but they don't want it to be so bad that it causes the whole system to collapse. And if either the dollar was just allowed to rise unimpeded, it would literally collapse the system. So I think that there will be points along the way where policies will be changed or slowed or you know put in place that would at least temporarily uh, halt the dollar's rise. And if you think about it, this is kind of what we saw after the global financial crisis in 2008. The dollar got very strong at that point. Um, there was a global margin call on the dollar. The whole world needed dollars. Asset prices were falling around the world. And so that's when the world came together and again, flooded the system with this milkshake. Same thing again happened after COVID, right? Um, the dollar got very strong um, in the COVID crisis. The world came together. They worked together. They flooded the the market again with bailouts, stimulus, uh, QE, um, monetary policy, and it caused the dollar to temporarily fall down. But here we are again, and the dollar's higher. So I, I think what's likely to happen is sometime probably in the next, I don't know, three to six months, that there will be some kind of a pivot or some kind of a you know, response by, by the Federal Reserve and some of the other monetary agencies that will probably slow down the dollar's rise. And so, and then maybe we get a period of three, six, nine months where the dollar's weak for a while, asset prices start to rise again. But then I think we'll hit another, you know, it, it'll pop up again, and then maybe the dollar goes on another run. And and a part of the part of the reason that I that I don't think it will be a smooth, uh, it, it's not just going to go in one direction in a smooth manner, is there are so many different pieces to this. And, and I often try to tell it in a linear story, but it's not really a linear story. And it could be that chapter three comes before chapter two and chapter five comes after chapter seven. And what I mean by that is there's economics that are at play here. There's domestic politics that are at play here. There's geopolitics that are at play here. There's an energy crisis that's at play here, but it's all kind of happening at the same time. And it's kind of happening to all places around the world at the same time. And so it's a, it, to a certain extent, it's a perfect storm. And it just so happens that because the US dollar underlies the whole system, when you have a storm, that underlying collateral tends to rise in value. Now, again, it doesn't, you know, even when you have a hurricane or a bad storm, maybe, you know, you get some winds and some lightning and it's really bad and then it kind of quiets down for an hour or two and then you get another gust. I, it's kind of like that. I, I don't think this is just going to be a bomb that goes off and then everything's done immediately. I expect it to kind of play out over a number of years. Yeah. What do you think? Um, what do you think the end game is? It's a very good question. I think ultimately what's going to happen is I think the dollar will get to a level. Not be, I think it will get away from the Federal Reserve. That it'll even get stronger than they want it to be. And I think what's going to happen is that the world will have to come together and agree to some kind of a monetary reset or another plaza accord or some kind of a um, introduction of a new system, for lack of a better way of saying it, that kind of takes a lot of these bad debts off the table, kind of clears uh, the field and so that we can kind of start anew. Now, whether that's done willingly or unwillingly or whether it's forced upon them you know i don't really know but i think that's kind of where we're headed 
Um, a lot of the problems that we've seen over the last, call it 25 years, have never been dealt with. Um, the can has been kicked down the road. And I think, I think Americans in general are kind of familiar with this idea that every time that we've had a crisis, we've kicked the can down the road, we've borrowed more money than, than before, we've kind of papered over the problem, and eventually that day is going to come where we kind of come upon that can again. And I think that that's correct, but I don't. I think it's true for the whole world. I don't think that this is a uniquely American phenomenon. I think it's true in Japan. It's true in Europe. It's true in China. It's true in Russia. And it just kind of ha it just kind of so happens that everybody's kind of converging on these cans that they've collectively kicked down the road. And I, I think I think we are, you know, kind of. I don't want to say we're in the end stages because I think this is going to take another several years to play out. But I think that's where it's headed. I think it's headed towards a new system or a new a new way of uh, of of doing it. And and I think what you're seeing on a big level right now is the United States is trying to hold on to its position as the global leader, and you're seeing places like China and Russia trying to edge their way into becoming the new global leader, and. You know, I think anybody that has ever been in a position of power knows you you never willingly you never willingly give away power. Everybody wants to maintain it, right? Um, and and so for the U.S. to lose that role, I think somebody would have to take it from them. And I don't think that the U.S. would ever give that away willingly. And as a result, I think that that is probably likely to be um, a volatile event should it happen. Yeah. Can you help um, folks, you, you mentioned um, you do a lot of work with like individuals and um, I'm grateful to have you on because I feel like you're the person to explain this. Can, can we just explore a bit more like some of the implications of the stronger dollar and like, you know, wh what individuals particularly should be thinking about as it relates to it or like help, help sure. folks who might not follow this from day to day understand? Yeah, well, I think it. I think it's an important time to talk about it for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, I think some of your listeners in the United States might have one view and some of your listeners outside the United States might see it differently. And, and the reason is, is because, you know, we and when I say we, I, I'm an American and I, I tend to think in U.S. dollar terms, we grew up only thinking in one currency. And so the implications of currencies are often kind of lost on us. But if you grew up in another country or if you currently live in another country or operate in another country or do business on a global basis, not only do you operate in your local currency terms, again, whether it's Brazil or whether it's Australia, whether it's Austria, whether it's Iceland, you, you have your local currencies, but then you also operate on the global stage in U.S. dollars. And so those people, the people that grew up outside the United States, are very used to thinking in two currencies. You know, if we got on a plane right now and flew to Brazil and walked to uh, Copacabana Beach and we asked somebody on the street what the U.S. dollar exchange rate was, they would absolutely know what it was. Same thing if we flew to Australia, same thing if we flew to Russia. But if we flew to Kansas and asked them what the what the Japanese yen cross rate was, they would have no idea what we were talking about. And the reason is because we have we, we don't need to think in two currencies here. Uh, but the implications of the quote unquote milkshake is that you will have to care and that currencies have an incredible impact on the world around you. 
Now, if you're an American, the impact may not be as great as it is, at least initially, not as great as it is for, for those outside the United States. Um, but what it does mean is that you living in the U.S., um, we are somewhat, we, we, we will be somewhat insulated, I believe, from the crisis, but it doesn't mean that we are immune from the crisis. And so I don't think it's going to be a period where you can just, uh, you know, put your money into your 401k and every month and just forget about it and everything's going to be fine. Unfortunately, I think it's going to be very volatile. Um, and I think uh, you may have to start thinking about things a little differently than you have in the past. Um, now, if you're if you are not in the United States and you're you know you're overseas, um, I think what's going to happen is your currencies are going to lose value significantly versus the U.S. dollar. And the reason is, I, I'll try to break this down in a very simplified manner. But if you think about let, let's first think about it in U.S. dollar terms. I think most people are familiar with the United States has borrowed a lot of money. Um, the national debt is now like $31 trillion. Um, you know, we've spent more than we make. Uh, we've piled up this a large amount of debt. Uh, we're no longer growing as fast as we used to. We borrowed this money when interest rates are low. And now that interest rates are rising, it will become harder to service that debt and it will be impossible to pay it off. And as a result, our standard of living is going to fall and our currency value is going to fall because the Federal Reserve is gonna to have to monetize all that debt to help us get through it. I think that's actually a very uh, fundamentally sound way of looking at the United States. The problem with looking at it only that way is that every other country is in the same situation. All these other countries have borrowed more money than they uh, have. Um, they can't ever possibly pay it back. They did it when interest rates were very low and now interest rates are rising. And as a result, their monetary authorities are already having to intervene in order to fund their treasury markets. And it's putting an incredible amount of pressure on their currencies. So the Japanese yen uh, has lost around 30% of its value versus the US dollar in the last year. That is an amazing move for a major currency. So if you're a Japanese citizen, your currency has just lost a lot of value. It would kind of be like you taking a 30% uh, uh, pay reduction. Um, the euro has lost 20% in the last year. The pound has lost around 15 or 20% in the last year. Um, you know, Argentina is, has lost even more than that. The Turkish lira has lost like 20%, 30%. So all of these countries are having these really big problems with their currencies. Now, the, the way that that affects Americans is when these other countries have problems, those problems don't just necessarily stay in their countries. It will start to bubble up and it will start to cause contagion and it will have knock-on effects back to the United States, which might not be pleasant as well. Now, again, I happen to think that the U.S. will do better during this storm than the rest of the world, but it doesn't mean that we're not going to have some after effects and it doesn't mean that we're not going to have um, some problems. Um, and at the end of the day, it's very possible that the U.S. dollar loses value in real terms, even though it gains in value versus other currencies. So what I mean by that is it's very possible, you know, we, we'll choose uh, energy prices as a perfect example, right? Or, or uh, you know, uh, food. Anybody who goes to the grocery store know, knows it costs more to buy a bag of groceries today than it did a year ago. Even though, the dollar has risen a lot versus these other countries. 
So it's very possible that we get this chaos that is globally that, that, that causes problems in financial markets caused by a stronger dollar, even though some everyday items that you go out and purchase may be going up in price. And so, you know, it, it, it's, it's not something that anybody will be able to avoid. I think it's going to affect everybody. Um, but I think if you can kind of understand what's happening and why it's happening, it, it may allow you to navigate these, uh, these times a little bit better than others. Yeah. It's so helpful, Brent, when you explain it, um, just a couple of like following questions. So sure. it, this idea of like having like a contagion effect, let's, let's explore that a little bit further. Like what could that mean? Like their economies sure. get hurt. That affects our economy. Like let's, Help me understand. Um, Let, so, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll use I'll use a couple different countries as an example. And, and again, I want to be clear: this kind of affects everybody. I'm going to single a couple countries out, but it, it's kind of happening globally. Um, but the the the, the, the one I'll use is Japan. Um, so, Japan, you know, again, all these problems that 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 people worry about the U.S. having and the U.S. dollar having to deal with at some point in the future, Japan is having to deal with it today. And what I mean by that is for the last, call it, let's call it 20 years, you know, give or take, maybe 25 years, they have had to do some kind of extraordinary monetary policy in their country to combat the deflationary effects of a slowing economy. Now, what they did is they, and, and during that time, they have borrowed a lot of money. And when the when the when the Japanese government borrowed this money, they issued bonds, Japanese government bonds. And so the 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 people that bought these Japanese government bonds were, for the most part, Japanese pension funds, Japanese banks, Japanese insurance companies, Japanese individuals. So the entire Japanese economy um, is is stuffed full of Japanese government bonds that that were issued when interest rates were extremely low, you know, 2%, 1%, even negative percent. Well, now the, the problem with that is again, like people understand with the dollars, once interest rates start to rise, that puts downward pressure on bond prices because bond prices and interest rates trade inverse to each other. So after the COVID response, we know or if you don't know, you probably should know that now there's these massive inflationary pressures around the world, even in Japan. You know, Japan has been trying to get some inflation in their country for 25 years unsuccessfully, but they're finally starting to get some inflationary pressures. The problem with getting these inflationary pressures is then interest rates tend to rise. So earlier this year, interest rates went from, in Japan, they went from zero to 25 basis points. Now, 25 basis points is 0.25%. So point, so 25% of 1%. So 0.25% is all that interest rates rose in Japan. That's not a lot. In the US, they've risen you know, three or 4%, um, depending on how you calculate it. But just a 0.25% rise in interest rates caused so many problems for these banks, insurance companies, pension funds, endowments, and individuals in Japan and it put so much downward pressure on the bond prices in, you know, in the system that the Bank of Japan had to come out and reiterate several times that they were committed to keeping interest rates low, which meant that they would go 
And they would, as the government, they would buy these government bonds to pull. The, and as when they buy the bonds, that pulls the interest rates down or at least holds it at 25 basis points. But every time they do this, they're spending more. They're printing, just to keep it very simple, they're printing new yen and they're putting it into the market in exchange for those bonds. So they're flooding the Japanese market with more yen. So as the supply of yen rises, the value of the yen falls. And so that's why we've seen the Japanese yen fall 30% in the last year. Now, if that was just if that just affected Japan, it would be bad for Japan and nobody else. The problem is, is it doesn't just affect Japan. You know, it's a very globalized world now. And what one country does affects another country. And a very simple way uh, one to explain is the relationship between Japan and China. So China, we all know, is a very big global exporter, um, and they're a regional competitor to Japan. As Japan's currency falls, that means in relation to the Japanese currency, the, the Chinese currency is rising, okay? Or, or it's becoming more expensive, which means on a relative basis, if I can choose to buy goods in Japan or buy goods in China, the goods in Japan are cheaper. So if you can, if, 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 if importers are buying from Japan rather than China, that puts pressure on China. That means they're not making as much money. Well, so that's putting pressure on China, but China is also struggling with a, um, a, a real estate crisis. You know, for years and years and years, they grew at a, an incredible pace. They borrowed a lot of money to build this real estate. Now real estate prices are coming down and it's putting a lot of pressure on Japan, or I'm sorry, on China. And then with China, with Japan putting pressure on China, they're kind of getting it from two different places. That puts pressure on China to make their currency weaker. So if China were to decide to devalue the yuan in order to offset the deflationary pressures of their real estate market and to offset the, 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 the pressures that they're feeling from Japan, they could do that. But in doing that, by making their currency cheaper, they would be sending deflation to the rest of the world and making in particular, the US dollar stronger. That could cause havoc in global financial markets from the United States to Europe, to Africa, to South America. It could cause a global crisis if, if China were to do that. Now, I don't know for sure that they're going to, but I think that's where it's headed. But, but that's an example of how one country getting in trouble can cause another country to get in trouble and then can cause the whole world to get in trouble. Um, we'll have to wait and see whether that plays out, but it's certain you cannot remove that as a possibility. It, that that is more possible today than it has been in any time previous to now. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned earlier in the conversation that um, the U.S. might possibly want this, or like right now they might possibly want the stronger dollar. I mean, I, I don't, and I'm not an expert, so I don't know if this is even like a good question to ask, but if others are having it worse off or could have it worse off in this scenario, couldn't that also like set us up for some like, would that, could it create like geopolitical tensions if like the U.S. is doing oh, better than everyone else? Help me understand. Okay. So you're, it's, it's a great question and you're absolutely right. It definitely can. Um, you've probably seen headlines this year about the U.S. weaponized the dollar or the or, or the U.S. is using the, the dollar as a weapon. And it's true. They are. 
And uh, I think many, again, many people don't understand this, but the US dollar may be the best weapon that the United States has, and it can be used in a way that most people don't even understand. So what I mean by that is because the US dollar is the global reserve currency, what that means is countries all over the world trade use the US dollars as a basis for trade, even though the US dollar is not their home currency. So if a company in Japan is importing soybeans from Brazil, that transaction probably takes place in dollars. If um, you know, if a country in um, the Asia is exporting coal to Australia or or vice versa, it's very likely uh, being invoiced in U.S. dollars. Uh, and it's because the again, it, this is the way the system was set up post World War II, and it's been enforced by the it's it's been defended and enforced by the United States since then. Um, and as a result of the dollar being the global reserve currency, there's great demand outside the United States for the dollar. Since there's great demand for the United States for the U.S. dollar outside the United States, if countries or companies want to borrow, if they borrow in dollars, they will pay a lower interest rate. So if a shoe manufacturer in Malaysia wants to build a new plant, um, and they borrow in dollars rather than, uh, I think it's the Malaysian ring, and I'm not even sure. If they, if they borrow in dollars rather than their local currency, they will probably pay a lower interest rate. And so as a result of this type of dynamics, countries and companies all over the world have borrowed an enormous amount of dollars uh, over the years. And the amount of dollars that is owed outside the United States by non-U.S. entities is actually greater than the amount of dollars that entities inside the United States owe. And so the, the reason that's important is that as now, as, in, as the U.S. raises interest rates, they're not just raising interest rates on the United States, they're raising interest rates on the whole world that uses the U.S. dollar for funding and that uses the dollar for trade. Um, if we go back to that uh, Malaysian shoe manufacturer, if they borrow a million dollars and they have to pay it back in dollars, but then their local currency falls by 10%, that's kind of equivalent of the loan going from a million to 1.1 million, right? So um, it, it, it can be, so dollar strength can, can become a really big problem. And you're seeing that all over the world right now. Um, and so to your point, as the U.S. does this, um, it's not necessarily making any friends. <laughs> um, and you, you've even seen over the last couple of weeks, uh, the IMF, the World Bank, even the United Nations came out and said, hey, United States, we need you to lay off on strengthening the dollar. Um, the problem is, is that I think the, the, well, the, US, the U.S. currently wants a stronger dollar for two reasons. They want it stronger because that is one way. It's really the only way they have to combat the inflationary pressures that we're feeling in the United States. They feel like if they raise rates, um, it will make the, the money supply tighter. And as a result, growth will slow, but it'll also inflationary pressures will come down as well. Um, and so that's one reason why they're raising rates. But the other reason I think that they're raising rates is they are using it as a weapon. And if you think about what's happened since COVID, right? Since COVID, um, relationship between the United States and China has deteriorated. The relationship between the United States and Russia has deteriorated tremendously. Uh, there's a there's a war on the border of Russia and Europe. So relationships between Russia and Europe have deteriorated dramatically. Um, and so I 
and so their sides are being drawn. Now, whether you want to label that the U.S. versus China or the U.S. and Europe versus Russia and China or the U.S. versus Russia or East versus West, you know, capitalism versus communism. There's a lot of different ways to kind of break this up. But the point is, is that the world is kind of moving away from cooperation rather than towards cooperation and battle lines are being drawn and sides are being chosen. So I, since the whole world needs dollars, if the U.S. raises the price of the dollar and puts everybody in a vulnerable position because they need dollars, then the U.S. can now that those now that those countries are in a vulnerable position, they can more easily be manipulated or influenced into helping out the United States. As an example, if let's just use Turkey as an example, if Turkey uh, Turkey has done a pretty good job of playing both sides uh, against each other and being friends with both sides, meaning both the United States and Russia. Um, if Turkey got into trouble and they needed U.S. dollar funding, the U.S. dollar, the U.S. could go to Turkey and say, OK, we will provide you a swap line or we will provide you a lending facility or we will help you with this U.S. dollar funding need. But in return, we expect you to help us with China and we expect you to help us against Russia. Um, so I kind of think that's where it's headed, and that's why and how the dollar can be used uh, as, a, as a weapon. And if the U.S. is currently um, in a better position than the rest of the world, that sort of solidifies their position as the global leader. But to your point, it can also cause conflict. It can sow uh, you know, discord. It can make people mad at the United States. And so it, it's kind of a, a very... Uh, very dangerous game we're playing. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to the Fed, too, and um, I would love to hear your views on um, them raising rates uh, to curb inflation. Um, what is kind of your outlook there, your thought, your thoughts there? And something I, I pretty much ask every guest, but kind of want to hear sure. what you're thinking as it relates to their rate hikes and some of the implications. And can they, I mean, people probably ask you, like, do you think they'll be effective in curbing inflation? Um, so this is a multi-part answer. I will do my best to answer it in a easy to understand manner. Um, the, the thing that I think is interesting about the question itself is that a year ago, the, the conventional wisdom and the fully accepted view by literally everybody was that the U.S. would never raise rates. They would never stop doing QE. The U.S. government would never stop sending checks to people, and they certainly would never you know, do QT or start selling bonds off their balance sheet. But, you know, 12, 15 months later, the checks have stopped. QE has stopped. We've raised interest rates several times and they've even started to do uh, QT. Um, so all the certainty that was with that a year ago is completely gone and now it's the other way. And now everybody is certain that the U.S. is going to have to stop raising rates and go back to that. Now, they might have to. I don't know for sure, but but I think that that's really interesting that people that were so certain a year ago and were wrong are now so certain um, today. And the fact that they were wrong a year ago, it, it hasn't stopped them from being certain again now. So I, I think that that's an interesting and kind of psychological thing with regard to the Fed and what's going on. I tend to think that I, first of all, I should say I'm a very big Fed critic. I, I'm not a fan of central bankers. I think that they've caused more problems than, than they have uh, solved. Um, but 
That said, I think that Powell and the Fed has been extremely clear for the last year of what they plan to do. And despite all the protestations to the contrary, they have followed through. They have raised rates. They have raised rates. Time and again, they've raised rates. Time and again, people have said, now they're going to pivot and try to front run it. And then they've had to come out again and say, listen, we've made it clear we're going to raise rates. And I think until, you know, I, th I think you kind of have to believe them. Um, so I think that they will continue to raise rates longer than most people think they will. Now, I put a caveat on there because they will pivot but they will not pivot when things are calm. In other words, some the people that think they're going to pivot tomorrow, they're not going to pivot when stocks are at this level, when the VIX is relatively low and the funding markets are still functioning. Now, if the stock market falls another 20% and the treasury market seizes up and the VIX goes to 60 and the whole system starts to come down, then they will absolutely pivot. That's the reason that they're there. Um, and, and if the, the, there's an interesting thing that, that I kind of also find interesting is that uh, a year ago, I was talking to somebody and this gets to your inflation question. And they said, inflation's out of crowd control and there is nothing that the fed can do to get inflation under control. And I said, well, what if they just keep raising interest rates? And he said, well, then we'll have the, then, then prices will come down. And I said, well, you, you can't have it both ways, right? Either the Fed can do something or they can't do something. You, you, and so my point is the Fed can absolutely squash inflation. The problem is, is they might squash the entire economy in the process. So I, I, th I think the people that say the Fed is, is helpless or hopeless, I, I think that's, I, I would encourage you to get rid of that view. They can absolutely bring inflation down. Now, whether they can engineer a soft landing, that's an entirely different story. And I think it's very unlikely that they can engineer a soft landing. But I don't rule it out. I, again, I don't know. I, again, I think because of you know this milkshake theory of mine, if capital from around the world flows into the United States at the expense of the rest of the world, then perhaps there's some way that we can kind of stay afloat longer than everybody else. And in that environment, I think it might be possible that they can raise rates more than the typical person thinks. Um, I, I think the best way for me to answer that is just to be honest and say, I don't know, but I'm prepared for either one. But I think the people that say that the U.S. absolutely cannot raise interest rates anymore, I, I think that that's a little bit too strong of a position to take. Yeah. I like your answer and I, and I appreciate you being so <laughs> candid too. And like, yeah, well, yeah. No, who knows? Um, yeah. At the top of the conversation, uh, you mentioned like as part of your views, like this notion of heading for a currency crisis. And I'm sure you've um, addressed it, but um, gosh, like, can we talk about like how a currency crisis plays out and manifests itself and how one might navigate a currency crisis? Yeah, so I think the best, again, the, the the best way to navigate it is to understand why it's happening in the first place. Um, and again, the, the reason it's happening is all these reasons that we, we've kind of talked about further. You know, global leadership around the world has been perpetually bad for decades, and they've gotten them into a city, they, they've, they've boxed themselves into a corner to where they no longer have good decisions. It's just a matter of what is the least bad decision. 
Um, and I think the best way to manage the currency crisis is to understand how the system works. And because the dollar underlies the entire system, the system is, for lack of a better word, rigged in favor of the U.S. dollar. And not only that, but because the U.S. is the global hegemon, the world leader, the, the biggest military, all these things, we have a number of advantages that the rest of the world just doesn't have. So not only is it rigged in our favor, but we have a lot of the advantages that the rest of the world doesn't have. We, again, we have the straw. It's very hard for the rest of the world to drink the milkshake if they don't have the straw. So again, I think the best way to navigate it is to you know, own U.S. dollar assets versus the rest of the world. If you are in the U.S. and you're a U.S. investor, I would encourage you not to have a bunch of exposure to emerging markets. I would encourage you not to have a bunch of exposure to Europe or, or Asia. I think you're better off owning local U.S. blue chip companies like Coca-Cola and Philip Morris and Raytheon and um, you know these big battleship blue chip U.S. companies. I think they will weather the storm. Uh, better than the rest of the world. Now, if you're a Brazilian investor or if you're a South African investor or you're an Australian investor and you have the ability to choose where you invest, I think you would be better off holding your cash in U.S. dollars rather than in local dollars. And to the extent that you're buying, uh, investing rather than just holding cash, I think you would be better off holding U.S. companies than holding your local companies. Again, if someone in Australia, as an example, were to buy Coca-Cola, and let's say that Coca-Cola just stays flat, doesn't grow at all. Well, it pays a 4 or 5% dividend, so now you just made 4 or 5%. And if the Australian dollar loses 5 or 6% versus the US dollar, now you've made 10%. And then if by some you know fortunate event, Coca-Cola grows 10%, now you've just got a 20% return. So I think... You know, I think in general, you need to understand the, how the system works, understand that whether you like it or not, whether you think it's fair or not, whether you think it's the moral thing or not, if your goal is to make money, I think you need to understand how the system is designed and the system favors the U.S. dollar and U.S. dollar assets. Got it. Um, you used to Oh, the other thing I should the other thing I should say, and I haven't said this yet, is I think everybody should own gold. I mean, I, I think. In the years ahead, I think gold is going to do very well. Now, I'm a little different than most people who advocate for gold because most people who advocate for gold say that you should only own gold, sell everything else, buy gold, and you're going to do great. I don't necessarily think that's the right thing to do. I think everybody should own it. I think it's going to do really well, especially in other currency terms. And I think eventually it will do well in U.S. dollar terms. But I don't know that it's going to do well in U.S. dollar terms over the next year or so. It might. And I think you should own it as insurance. But I don't think that you should sell everything you own and go buy gold. But I think it's a critical component for everybody's portfolio. Yeah. And obviously, everyone's portfolio is different. But like, how do you um, think about gold in the context of it? Like the size of it? Or do you also do you like want to own physical, uh, not the yeah. ETF? Like, how do you think about it? Well, again, it kind of depends on where you're based and what uh, what currency you're denominated in. Um, you know, if you're a U.S. dollar investor, I think for now, if you have 10% in gold, I think that's a pretty good allocation. You know, if you're a euro investor or a yen investor, I think you might want to have 20 or 25% in gold. Um, you know, so it kind of depends on that. Um, I think the baseline should always be uh, physical um, to the extent that you can actually own the physical and own it outside your brokerage account. Um, I think that's a better way to do it. 
Um, you know, I'm not a big fan of the miners as a gold holding. What I mean by that is I think if you're going to invest in gold miners, it should be viewed as a trade, but not as like a core bullion holding. Um, and I think you need to be ready to to buy them and sell them and buy them and sell them. I don't think that the miners are a buy and hold um, vehicle. And I kind of feel like silver is the same way. Um, I think it's something that you you don't just buy and hold. I think it's a, it's more of a trading vehicle. But I'm a big fan of I'm a big fan of precious metals. I'm not a big fan of just buying and holding precious metals forever. I think I think you buy it with the idea that at some point you're going to sell it. Got it. Um, you mentioned like wanting like wanting to own like these kind of more like battleship ready like blue chip um, U.S. companies, and we are getting into like earning season. So I, I expect on the conference calls, a lot of CEOs are going to bring up currency headwinds and fluctuations. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's something you ever thought about. Like, how would you advise a CEO? Like, let's say hypothetically, they have to deal with this kind of situation. Like, what should they do? Like the, some of these companies that have to deal with this. I mean, it's really hard. I mean, one one thing I would do is that to the extent that you can pay for if if you can if you can denominate your liabilities in something other than dollars, that's one thing I would do. Um, you know, if you're if you're doing business in you know Turkey or if you're doing business in South Africa or Australia or wherever it is, if you can denominate your your liabilities in foreign currency, but if you can earn in U.S. dollars, um, that would be one thing that you could do. Um, to the extent that you have foreign currency exposure and you can't get out of it or, or foreign currency revenue, I would be hedging that revenue in a way that I didn't, you know, if, if, if you're going to be receiving yen um, revenues, um, and, but now yen is down 20%, that means your yen revenues are down 20% in dollar terms, right? So I would be, I would be trying to hedge those large currency exposures um, that I, that I currently have. And then I would be very, very careful about um, the cash that I spent on new projects in emerging markets or international markets. Um, to a certain extent, I would be building up a reserve of cash to go in and potentially buy these assets, overseas assets at distressed prices over the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think, I, I mean, I'm just also thinking like in, in different conversations I've had, um, you mentioned like gold um how about just like having this like cash it's like you're, you're an investor absolutely. okay absolutely absolutely i think i think everybody should have cash um and i think a lot of people because especially now that we're in an inflationary environment right uh people say cash is trash i can't uh, just sit in cash because it will you know i'm losing three percent five percent eight percent whatever your number is for inflation i'm losing that just sitting there in cash Mm-hmm. To a certain extent, that's true. But if you're opportunistic with your cash, first of all, cash does a couple of things. It gives you the opportunity to be opportunistic. The other thing it does is if you have cash on the sidelines, it will help you sleep better at night. And not only that, but if you have cash on the sidelines already, let's say we get into a very big market drawdown, something like March of 2020, like the COVID crisis, right? If you have cash on the sideline, then you can go in and buy great assets at extremely distressed prices. That's when the optionality of having cash is great. But the other thing that it does is it keeps you from making a really bad decision, like selling everything at the bottom in March of 2020. So in other words, if you're fully invested and you don't have any cash, 
and then we go into a crisis. Well, then you probably have to sell something because you need to have a safety net just in case things keep going down, right? It's kind of one of those things where you just, you, at some point you have to cash out. You can't ride everything to zero. But the problem is, is more often than not, just when you meet it, get to that level of pain that you can't take it anymore and you raise cash, that's when the market rebounds and goes the other way. So already having cash on the sidelines will not only give you the opportunity to buy assets at really distressed prices, but it will also help you not sell assets at really depressed prices. I like that, like helping you sleep better and giving you that optionality as you explained. Um, how about your thoughts on Bitcoin? What do you think of Bitcoin? You know, I kind of have this complicated relationship with Bitcoin. And what I mean by that is on a personal level, I find it extraordinarily interesting. It's kind of the intersection of everything that I find interesting, you know, politics, money, investing, psychology. It's really, really, and, and, and I think, you know, I'm some, I wouldn't say I'm a monetary historian, but I'm really interested in the history of money. I'm interested in what money is. I'm interested in how people think about money. And so Bitcoin has been this fascinating thing to watch develop that is all of those things mixed into one. I have a little bit of a problem allocating a large amount of client assets to it for a couple of reasons. Is one, I don't think it's quite as certain as a lot of the Bitcoin proponents think that it is. Um, I think that in many ways, the government will be able to fight against it if they choose to do so in a more efficient manner than many people think that they will. I think that they have a lot more tools that they could use if they decided to do it. Um, and I finally, I, I, I think that they're, they're, there's kind of this underlying thing in, in not necessarily Bitcoin, but in the whole space, I have a real problem with tether and I, you know, I know there's this whole thing about the tether truthers and the FUD and, you know, and it goes back years and years. And for some people say it's not something you need to worry about. And for them that that's fine. I am not one of those people who just says, I'm not going to worry about it. I think that it's an underlying issue for the entire space. I think eventually it will be shown that, uh, that it is not on the up and up. And I think when that happens, that would be negative for the price of Bitcoin. Now, if that was ever solved and I got a little bit more clarity on, you know, government policy and the way that nations would react to this, maybe I would change my mind. I've owned it off and on over the years. Again, I think it's really interesting. Um, I'm just not, uh, I'm, I, I would not say I'm a Bitcoin proponent. I don't hate it, but I'm not a proponent. Yeah. Don't hate it, but not a proponent. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then going back to, you know, when you're outlining your thesis on the dollar and the dollar milkshake theory, you mentioned um, part of that kind of ending in more of like a monetary reset or like maybe a new plaza accord, um, an, a new, an introduction to like a new system. Have you given much thought to that? Like what, what a new system could look like? Like, is there a, a viable alternative um, to the U.S. dollar? Well, I think, again, this is pure speculation. When, when you start talking totally. about a, a, a reset, it's, you know, it can go off in any direction and then you can end up being 99% wrong. Um, even though I'm a big believer in gold, I don't think we're going back to a gold standard. Um, I won't rule it out. I'm not saying it's impossible. 
And it's very possible that gold is a part of whatever comes next. But I, I don't think that we're going to go from a system of government control of fiat to government having no control and a gold standard. More, I think what's more likely than not going to happen is that there will be a global, and unfortunately this may come as a result of a war. That's typically how these things get changed. There's typically a global conflict involved. And after that conflict, whether it's just economic conflict or actually military conflict, um, I think the world will then come together and you know put forth the new system and kind of reset everything. When that happens, my guess is that it will be some form of digital, you know, central bank digital currency um, that is issued. Um, perhaps it will be somewhat uh, of a partnership amongst uh, a couple different countries or, or, or a more global solution. And may, maybe as part of that, there's some, you know, gold and oil and some other natural resources as part of the basket that defines what money is. But at the end of the day, whoever is in charge of the world, when that reset happens, they will say what money is going to be. And if they say it's this, then it will be that. That's what it will be. I mean, it, again, it doesn't have to make a lot of sense. I think I think a lot of people, when they're talking about these things, they try to figure out what makes the most sense. And well, then that is what's going to be the new money. It doesn't have to make sense. It just, all, all that's required is that whoever's in charge enforces it. And if you have any, if you have any questions, if, if you go to prison, money in you know people trade cigarettes or sardines and that's the currency that takes place inside that prison um it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense they don't even eat the sardines they just trade them among back but it works you know if you if you go back to the you know post world war ii the soviet union lasted from you know 1940 to 1990 right so for 50 60 years they had this, you know, communist system, and they had this uh, ruble that was used among the the trading block, and it didn't make a lot of sense. But you know what? It lasted for fifty years. I mean, ultimately, those country, the, the, those economies failed, and um, they had to move to something differently. But but it lasted for a long time. Um, so I think whatever comes next will be determined by who's in power next. Yeah, it's a good question. Like like what is um, money? But I, when you mentioned like the new system be will be determined by who's in power next, like conflict, war, the, uh, hypotheticals here, or like what it could be or how we could get there. I mean, this uh, this this thesis that you lay out, um, it does not seem to have like a happy ending. Like it, it seems like it's a very dark, dark thing. And well, well, un unfortunately, it is kind of a dark thing. And, and I, I always try to make the distinction between the things I talk about in myself personally. I don't think of myself as a dark person. I don't think of myself as a depressed person. I am. I don't necessarily think of myself as a pessimist. I, I try to see the, the positive side and everything. But I just think that for a lot of reasons, you know, we're kind, we need to go through a period of pain to absolve all the ills that have built up over these years. Uh, even though I'm an optimist, I'm also a realist, right? And even though I may want to see something happen a certain way, my clients didn't hire me to allocate assets the way I would like the way the world to be. They hired me to figure out what's gonna happen and put their money in a way that's going to increase it, right? 
And so I have to bring a heavy dose of reality to everything I do. Um, and so I think that the world, you know, if you look back through history, everything cycles, you, you know, the, the, there's good times, there's okay times, and then there's bad times. And I think you have to have a plan to get through the bad times. And, and the interesting thing is that if you have a plan to get through the bad times, the bad times can actually lead to you being in a fantastic position when things finally get better. Um, I, I've used this quote before, but uh, I, I was somebody who loved watching Game of Thrones. Um, and it was, a, you know, it was this popular TV series over the last 10 years. And there was a character that when all this crazy stuff was going on, he kept moving up. Uh, he, he, he kept moving his station up in life. And he, there was a scene where he said, chaos is a ladder. You know, it's not other, when other people fall, it gives you the opportunity to rise. And if you kind of can kind of see through the, the fog of war and, and understand what's going on, you know, unfortunately it may happen to the detriment of others, but if you're, if you, if your goal is to try to, you know, get through the crisis and come out of it unscathed and then be able to to build something great on the other side of it you know this the the these problems that i see also present incredible opportunities yeah it's important to be prepared i like i like that game of thrones quote chaos is yeah. a ladder um do you have any parting thoughts for the folks um who are watching and also like let them know where they can find you or learn more or read more yeah i think the most important thing that I try to get across to people is do your best to think for yourself, but then when you think for yourself, do your best to think about what's actually going to happen rather than what you would like to see happen. I think oftentimes in investing, people make the mistake of wanting the world to be a certain way. And so then they allocate their assets for the way that they would like the world to be. But the world does not necessarily or the world is not necessarily going to be the exact way you want it to be. And um, if, if you're starting a company or if you, if, you, if, you, if you have an idea and you're literally trying to change the world, then I think that's very respectable. And I, I, you know, I think it's a worthy cause. But if you're just actually trying to profit from the way the world is, that's a completely different thing. Um, and so I think you need to keep that in mind when um, when you're when you're allocating your portfolio and you're trying to figure out what what the next move is. Um, you know, I've done a number of these interviews. Um, if, if you go on Google or YouTube and type in Brent Johnson or Santiago Capital, there, there's an or, or milkshake theory. There's a number of different links. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. You can find me there as well. Um, I appreciate you having me on. I'd be happy to. If, if it's of interest at some point in the future, I'd be happy to come back and, and talk to you guys again. And I always tell people, you know, I, I have a I have a web page that's SantiagoCapital.com. All that's on there is a couple of regulatory documents and my contact information. Um, you're welcome to contact me. I can't promise I will get back to you right away. I'll do my best to respond. Sometimes I get overloaded and I don't quite uh, succeed in that. But I, I'm always happy to talk to people to the extent I'm able to do so. Mm -hmm. Well, Brent, I really enjoyed this conversation and I definitely want to have you back on. And I'm kind of thinking like I would love to do a show just on like what is money and have maybe you and a couple other guests because I think it would be a fascinating discussion. But um, Brent Johnson, founder and CEO of Santiago Capital, I thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Really appreciate it. Take care.